Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Lighthouse Bible Church this morning. Let's begin by praying at this time. Father, we just want to come to you this morning and thank you. We thank you, Father, that you created us. We thank you that you created us in your image and likeness. We thank you, Father, that after we fell, you decided that you were going to send your son, Jesus Christ, the God-man, to save us. And he did that by going to the cross and dying for our sins. He was buried, and then on the third day, he raised him from the dead. Whoever simply believes what you have said about your son and his deity, his death and resurrection, will never perish. Just believe. You'll never perish, but you'll have eternal life. Father, we ask this morning also that you would be there to comfort and encourage through the Spirit um, all the members of the body of Christ, particularly those that are hurting the most this morning. We thank you also for the gift of the Spirit in our hearts, which enables us to understand things that you've revealed in your word. We ask this morning, Father, that we would be able to concentrate and, and understand and have that um, information and insights available for our hearts so that we go through our week, that we will have the ability to reflect and to look beyond our circumstances to the things that really matter. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. At this time, let's stand and have a congregation song. All right, a few announcements before we get started. First of all, you may or may not have noticed, but we have two new curry coffee makers, which means you can make your own coffee. But at 9.55, we would ask that you be finished with that. Okay, and take your seat. When the music starts, that means let's take our seats, just so you know. In case It doesn't mean I'm going to wait two minutes and 58 seconds. <laughs> it's about a three-minute song. But anyway... Um, also a couple of schedule notes first one is that we will not have service on Sunday August 27th we will not have service on Sunday August 27th but next Sunday is a special day August 6th of course it's the first Sunday of the month so we'll be celebrating the Lord's Supper but we'll also be installing two new deacons and so that's very exciting to look at and to be a part of it's a kind of it's a unique thing um so I hope all of you can come and support our two new deacons. Okay, that's Lee and Josh. Okay, so really excited about next week. All right, just uh, and, and by way of um, giving you information, I hope that you know now that we have these two bookshelves. I want you to make sure you know that. we On the left side, um, actually I can walk around. Um, my left, yeah, that's right, thank you. Yeah, on your right, my left, right here, we have uh, Bible gospel tracts, okay? Encourage you to take these, okay? They're, they're, I like these. I think that they're more, most accurate of the ones I've seen in terms of presenting the gospel. Um, you're welcome to take them. There's different kinds. You know, there's like, like this one is sports-related. You have patriotic ones and so forth. So you can check that out. Take, take what you need. Well, they make more, so we we got quite a few. We probably have 100 right here. Also, Bibles, okay? If you need a Bible, come up. You also have uh, our, our, our deacon in the back who will give look, and if you don't have one, offer one to you. We also have pamphlets. We have the Lost booklet, which a lot of people like. If you haven't read this, you might want to check it out. 
um, notebooks. This side we have the promises. We have a great book called Law and Grace. So in any event, you know, take, take a moment or two when you can to look at the, book, the bookshelves. Okay, let's begin now with our message. Pastors this morning, John chapter 14, verses 18 to 20. John chapter 14, verses 18 to 20. I gave you a moment. The title of today's message comes from that passage, and it's You Will See Me. You Will See Me. We're going to see what Jesus is talking about when he says that. You will see me. Again, John chapter 14, starting in verse 18. John 14, 18. All right, let's begin. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. And in that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. In this passage, Jesus continues to look ahead, as he has from verse 12 on. You know, he he looked ahead telling his disciples that they would do greater works than even he did when he was here. He was looking ahead talking about the the, the revolutionary new um, abilities that we would have in prayer in Jesus' name. He was looking ahead to telling the disciples that evening that the Holy Spirit would come and dwell in their hearts. And this morning he's looking ahead and giving us more information. So, Um, How do we know that? Well, every one of these three verses has an expression that points to the future. So if you can see in verse 18, notice, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. You see, that's a future promise. Now, in verse 18, we're going to have the general statement, okay? And then we're going to see how things are added to it. We've seen that already. We've seen that in every one of the subjects that we've looked at from verse 12 onward. We've seen that... Um, for example, when he talks about greater works than these, remember how we then moved to other passages later on and saw he talked about and added a little bit more? Well, and the same thing with prayer and the same thing with the Holy Spirit. And it turns out the same thing with the things he's going to bring up in our passage from verses 18 to 20. And that's the way John writes. Okay, that's how he writes. He'll introduce something and then he'll take us around and then he'll come back to that same thing. And he'll take us around again and come back. And he's doing that all the way around. Okay, some people want to call it a spiral approach to writing. And it's not a bad image, you know, because a spiral revisits things, but of course it's coming up. And as you get higher up, you can see more. So if you want to think about that image, um, that's how John writes. And it's going to be true with the things he says this morning. Again, verse 18, general statement. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I will come to you as very general. In other words, it doesn't give any information about where, when, why. Just, I will come to you. Now, that was meant to just settle them down once again. Remember, again, the context, that they're they're upset because he's going to leave them. They're upset that one of them is going to betray him. They're they're upset that that Peter, Jesus had made a prophecy that Peter was going to deny him. So they they didn't understand these things. And so he continues to calm them down, give them comfort, give them hope. And here in that very simple statement, I will come to you. Okay, so now now we see in verse 19 that now he's starting to explain what he means a little bit more. Okay, he's saying, okay, here's when, right? Here's when. After a little while, 
We're going to see what that expression means this morning. After a little while, the world will no longer see me. So now he's bringing in the fact that there's them, the disciples, and the world. And he's making a contrast. Something's going to happen that's going to divide clearly and forever the difference between the world and his disciples. The world will no longer see me, but you will see me. That's equivalent, as it were, to the statement, I will come to you. Because when he comes to them, they'll see him. Okay. So what he's doing here is, again, he's adding key information. And now my computer is adding key information. (laughs) Don't you love being connected to the Internet? All the things. Anyway, so, but still, even though he's adding information, even in verse 19, he's still speaking in a somewhat general way. Right. He says, the world will no longer see me. You will see me. Okay, so it's very general. Okay, again, the same question. Wonder what circumstances? When? Okay. And then, because I live, you will live also. Now, one of the things that um, we can see here and we've seen other places is that the same expression can mean different things depending on the context. We've already seen that, that at the beginning of chapter 14, when he's talking about, I will, I will come back, there, remember, he was talking about the rapture. Remember that? He was going to come back you know, out in the future, like way in the future. Well, this morning, when he says, I will come to you, it's not, it's not going to be long at all. It's going to be after a little while. We're going to see how short a time period that is. So he tells them that. And then he says, because I live, you will live also. So he's now, in the, in the, in the second half, he's adding some really helpful information. That he will come because he's living. And of course, when he talks about leaving them, we'll see this. But when he talks about leaving them as orphans, what does that mean? It means he's going to die, right? But then he says, you will see me because I live. And so we're going to see, you can probably already anticipate what that's about. So that's key information. And then verse 20, the most amazing verse here. Once again, it's, it's pointing to the future. Here again, he says things pretty simply, right? He says that in that day, now we don't know what that day is, but we're going we're gonna to figure that out. You will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Okay, so very simple language. And this is, this is one of those things that he had said, you know, you can't bear these things now, but afterwards you can. Afterwards, meaning when the Holy Spirit comes into your hearts, you're going to be understanding things that you never thought you'd be able to understand. Because you are who you are, a new creation, Paul's going to say. The God says, I'm going to reveal things that I've never revealed before. And in that day, you will know, I am in my Father. Now, that's, of course, a synonym for deity of Christ. I am in my Father. And then he says, and you in me, and I in you. Now, what's that mean? Well, he doesn't really lay it out here, okay? And clearly, the, the disciples in the upper room, while it, was, while it sounded great, they didn't really understand what he was talking about, you know? Now, it was an echo of what he had said about the Holy Spirit, right? That the Holy Spirit is with you and will be in you. Okay, that's the Holy Spirit. Now he comes back around and he says, that's true of me as well. I will be in you. And then he says, and you will be in me which is something that he didn't say about the Holy Spirit. Amazing verse. And we are able to discern what he means. Why? 
two reasons. First, we have the New Testament writings that they didn't have. Okay? They didn't have them. Why? Well, because the New Testament wouldn't be written until 2030. Who, you know, got the Revelation maybe as far as 50 years later, 60, who knows? We don't know. Uh, and the interesting thing is, these guys would be the ones that would write it, except for Paul who comes later. But it wasn't around then, so they didn't have that benefit. We do. And it's an amazing benefit for us. We should never, um, uh, never take that for granted. But in addition, as I've already mentioned, that we, we can now see into these things clearly what he's, what he's talking about because the Holy Spirit is guiding us and explaining these things to us. Now, through the Bible, by the way. I'm going to just point out for a minute that there are a lot of people who think that the Holy Spirit speaks to them. And what they mean by that is that they're, that they're going to get new revelation from him that nobody else has. I've had a special, I heard a special thing from the Spirit yesterday. And let me tell you about it. Well, here's the thing about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit only shines a light on the Scriptures. And for one purpose. Remember? Anybody remember the one purpose? To glorify the Lord Jesus Christ, right? So that same thing here, that we have the Spirit dwelling in our hearts, but, but the work of the Spirit... It comes through the scriptures. Okay, so if you want to, quote, hear from the Holy Spirit, open your Bible. Open your Bible, and he'll explain things to you that nobody had the ability to understand until after Christ goes to the Father and the Spirit comes into our hearts. So in verse 23, verse 20, Jesus is describing the future. And he's he's describing things that will come to pass, they will come to pass when the church age dawns. That's the thing to understand. The church age hasn't happened yet. But Jesus in the upper room here in chapters 13 through 16 is preparing the disciples. It's really the only time in any of the Gospels where Jesus talks about the oncoming church age. Okay. Other than that, he's directing his commentary to the Jews. And he's talking about him being the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. And, under, and telling them that he's God, right? And, and those kind of things. It's only here in chapters 13 to 16 that he now starts to give a hint, just a hint of what's coming in, in terms of the church age that will be soon upon them. And again, why? Because these 11 would be the ones who would, as it were, start it. These be, they'd be the ones that would preach the gospel and, and make disciples and, and have churches established. And, and have the gospel in a way that nobody in the Old Testament had it. Okay, so because of that, that Jesus is, has, has more information to set the stage for them at that time. All right, so these things, what are they? Well, again, generally speaking, there, that he will, we will know that Jesus is in the Father. And we'll, we'll know why and we'll know a lot about it because of the epistles. Okay, Paul particularly is going to explain specifics about who Jesus is that weren't in the Gospels. That, that, so in other words, the people before Jesus went and was ascended into heaven had no idea about some of this information. But we do. Not only that, what else does he say? And you and me. And you and me? How can it be? Think about, the, from, pretend you're an apostle that night. And you're sitting there, and he said that now I'm going to die. I'm going away. And then he says, but I'm going to come back, and you're going to see me. You know, that's exciting and miraculous on its own. 
But then he goes beyond that and he says, and you will be in me. <laughs> You'll be in me. Now, we, we don't know for sure, but if, it, if their track record comes into play again here, they totally misunderstood that. They, they had no idea. We do, and we'll see that. And then he says, and I'm in you. Specific things that will come to pass when the church age begins. Now, notice in verse 19 the expression, a little while. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you, Jesus says. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Well, it turns out that that, after a little while, is a really short period of time. Less than 24 hours, actually. Less than 24 hours. The world will no longer see Jesus, but they will see him again. In that day refers to a period that will start in 53 days. Okay, why 53 days? Well, because Jesus is speaking the night before he's going to die on the cross. Okay, so then you have his death and then you have, that's one, then you have two, three on the third day. Okay, and then you have what's called the Pentecost period, which means that there was a, there was a Jewish holiday and then it went for seven weeks. And at the end of that, that's when Jesus is going to what? ascend into heaven. And again, what happens when he ascends into heaven? After those 53 days, now the Holy Spirit has come to dwell in him. And then they will know these things. They will know that he's in his Father. And they'll know that Jesus is in them. And they'll know that, that they're in Jesus Christ. In Christ. All right. So let's begin. Let's go now to John chapter 14, verse 18. John chapter 14, verse 18. I... What we're going to do now is we're going to look at one expression at a time and, and get, get an understanding of it together. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Now, notice he, said, he doesn't say they will not be orphans, does he? he said, I won't leave you in that condition. In other words, you will be orphans for a little while. You see that? I will not leave you as orphans, What? but I will come to you. Now, I want to give you a little Greek this morning. Um, and it's the Greek word for orphan. Okay? The Greek word here was, was used the way that we use the term today, orphan. Okay? It was used for a child who lost his father. In other words, if you were to go into some of the manuscripts and texts that, were, that are available from everyday life and how they use the Greek language, they certainly did use this word to refer to a child who lost his father. Okay? But that wasn't the only use of that Greek word. Now, in general, the general meaning now, it's sort of a specific meaning is a child who lost his father. But generally, stepping back, it meant anybody who was left without anyone to care for them. Left without anybody to care for them. There's a more general meaning. As a matter of fact, I'll give you an example that the word in Greek culture was used to refer to disciples that lost their teacher. Now, remember, back then, the, the, this, the situation that existed between the disciple and the teacher was very unique and very different from anything that we really have today. I mean, we think of a teacher as, you know, some, a student goes into class and learns something, you know, and then goes home. But back in that time, the, those disciples of their teacher, their rabbi, would be with them all the time. He, he would be watching over them. He would be taking care of them. They would be learning things all the time, not only through information, but also through example. Now, it just wasn't just the rabbis and Jesus. It was also true of, of, for example, the philosophers at that time. 
You know, like Socrates, you probably heard that name, for example. Well, he had disciples who would follow him everywhere, be a part of his life. So when he died, of course, it was a, it was a crisis situation. And so they were left without anyone to care for them. When Socrates died, then his disciples were said to have been made orphans. Why? Because they were left without anyone to care for them. So therefore, when Jesus is going to die on the cross, his disciples will also be orphans in that sense. He won't be there to care for them any longer. Now, that's why he said to them that um, I will send you another helper, right? Why? Because he's gone away, right? And they're going to need somebody to replace him. Okay. So when he says, I will not leave you as orphans, he's saying, I'm going to leave you. I'm going to go to, to the cross and you'll be orphans, but only for a little while. Okay, so that's the meaning of orphans here. The disciples are about to lose their teacher and Lord when he dies. And then they'll be orphans in that sense. John fourteen eighteen, I will not leave you as orphans, and then I will come to you. Now, on with the understanding that the first part of verse 18 is talking about his death. Okay, I will come to you is following along with that. Okay, and it's a very specific short-term event that's going to happen. Again, here it's not talking about the end when he's going to come back for them, as he had been speaking in John chapter fourteen, verse three, for example. But again, this statement "I will come to you" is very general, very general. But when we add in more information and understand that he's going to the cross, now we become able to understand a little bit better what he meant by he will come to them. So in other words, he's going to die on the cross, but after that, he will come to them. Let's look at John chapter 14, verse 19 now. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live you will live also. Now, notice here the counterpoint between the fact that he's going to, he will not leave them as orphans, okay, but that does mean he's going to die, and here where he says, I will live. And because I will live, you will see me, I will come to you. Now, of course, I've already ruined the suspense here because I already told you that that little while turned out to be less than 24 hours. So now you, you can kind of put it together, right? In the upper room, less than 24 hours away, what's going to happen? Jesus is going to die on the cross. Okay, and then it's going to, something will happen right after that. And then something's going to happen on the third day. Now, but the interesting thing here in verse 19 that we've got to spend a little time on is that statement, the world will no longer see me. After a little while, while the world will no longer see me, you will see me. And there's that split in terms of the, who's going to see Jesus. The world, no. The disciples, yes. Now keep in mind that we're going to see what the world means. Okay, So Jesus is going to die on the cross. The world's no longer going to see him. By the way, ever. Okay, Ever. Okay, we'll, we'll see that and I hope you can be convinced that that's true. Well, what does he mean by the world? What does he mean? Does he mean that the natural world will no longer see him? It doesn't mean that. No, we've seen this before, the definition, but I'm going to simply say this about it this time. It's the domain of the unbeliever. It's the system in which the unbeliever lives. 
Okay, it is that is that reality that's that that, that, that kind of summarizes everything, and is in everything that is opposed to God, that is in rebellion against the world is in rebellion against God. Now let me ask: Are you in rebellion against God this morning? No, not if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. You can't be because you've been reconciled to God forever by the death of Christ on the cross. And when you believed in Jesus Christ, that was it. You will no longer be an enemy of God. I don't care what you feel. I don't care what people you do. I don't care what people say about you. You will never be in rebellion against God. So what does that mean? You are not of the world. Now, you still live in that system. When you go to work on Monday, you're going to be dealing with a reality of business, money, other people. That is part and parcel of the world, you know, because the world isn't right today. The world is run by who? Anybody know? Satan, right? He's called the God of this world, meaning this, the world of unbelievers. But that's the dominant Thing when we go out into the world, okay, unless you're really lucky, when you go into the workplace, most of the people that are there will not be believers in Jesus Christ. Okay, when you when you perhaps go to to Thanksgiving dinner with your family, many of them are not believers. Now, if you're lucky and blessed, they are. But for most people, many of them are not believers in Jesus Christ. When you go home and it's Saturday and people are having cookouts and they invite you over, chances are that many or most of the people at that cookout are not believers in Jesus Christ. And so you're, you're in the world. You're just not of the world. All right, so that's the little bit on what he meant by the world. But what does he say about the world? He says, after this little while, the world will no longer see me. And I'm going to tell you something, and I'm going to show it to you. After Jesus died on the cross, he never again appeared to an unbeliever. Let me say that again. After Jesus died on the cross, he never again appeared to an unbeliever. Let me walk you through this. Well, what happens the day he dies? Well, it turns out that the day he dies, the world, now represented, now think about this, the world is represented by here, by religion and pagan unbelief, okay? These are the very things, by the way, that Paul is going to talk about in Romans, the very beginning of Romans. He's going to talk about pagan Gentiles and how they're in rebellion against God. But then he's going to talk about the Jewish people, by and large, and they're in rebellion against God also. Well, it's interesting that around the cross of Jesus Christ, when he's dying on the cross, guess who's there? The Sanhedrin. That's the leadership of the Jewish people at that time. They're there. Remember, they were really happy. They were the ones that were crying out to crucify him the, you know, earlier that morning. Okay, So they were there, and they were hostile to Jesus Christ to the very end. They were wagging their tongue at him. They were, they were ridiculing him. But also the Roman soldiers. Now, of course, they were very professional, and they did their job. But they were, for the most part, unbelievers. In fact, the, one of the really... Um, unusual things is that after Christ died, one of them became a believer. But the Romans were not, in any sense, believers in the God of the Bible. Okay, And that's who was at the cross. So the world certainly witnessed his death. His death. Well, what happens after he dies? I'd like you to turn to John chapter 19, verse 38. John chapter 19, verse 38. So while the Romans... 
and the, and the Jewish leadership was there to see him die. I want you to notice who comes on the scene next. Look at John chapter 19, verse 38. What happens next is that a disciple of Jesus goes to Pilate. Now, Pilate, who was he? He was the Roman unbeliever governor representing the, the leadership of this world, right? So you have religious leadership and you have the government that's, you know, unbelieving. And there they were. But after Jesus dies on the cross, what happens is, is that now disciples come into the picture. Right? One of them is, is Joseph of Arimathea. He was, a, he was a believer, but a silent one. He didn't want anybody to know about it. Okay? But yeah, he goes to Pilate, and he asks for the body of Jesus. Pilate, the one who had sentenced Jesus to death, who had the authority as to what would happen to the bodies on the cross, allowed Joseph Arimathea to have it. Look at John chapter 19, verse 38. After these things, now those things are, of course, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And John describes that. We're going to get to that soon. And he has a description unlike any of the other gospel writers because he was at the cross. Okay. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, there he is. Notice who he was, being a disciple of Jesus. Was he a member of the world, and the, the unbelievers in rebellion against God? Absolutely not. Why? Because he was the disciple of Jesus. He believed in Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews. Asked Pilate that he, Joseph, might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission. So he came, and he took away the body of Jesus. Now, somebody else enters the picture now, Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus, as, as John notes here, first came to Jesus by night. We saw that in chapter 3. It's interesting that Joseph Arimathea, secret believer, Nicodemus came by night when nobody would see him. Okay? So that's who you're dealing with here. But, you know, the, other, the apostles were no better, really. Most of them fled. Right? Peter will deny him. So there's no, quote, heroes here, with the exception of John and the women, by the way, who stayed with him, even though when he, when he went to the cross and died. In any event, Nicodemus, verse 39. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes. Those were things that they used to anoint the body of a dead Jewish person. Bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds weight, so they took the body of Jesus and they bound it in linen wrappings with the spices as of the burial custom of the Jews. By the way, this is not our subject today, but I'll tell you something. The specific information that John gives about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the death knell to anybody who wants to say he didn't come out of that grave, okay, out of that tomb. Okay. He's very specific about what happened to that body. Okay. And it's all about what happens after death. After death, he's buried. Okay. Now, verse 41, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. What did they do? They buried the body of Jesus Christ. 
Now, I know they didn't say they buried him because he's not there, right? Just like none of us are going to be there when we die in our bodies anymore. As believers, what's going to happen? We're going to be face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what's going to happen. And then after a while, not a short while necessarily, but maybe today a short while, we're going to be reunited with a new body. That body's going to be a resurrected body. That body's never going to die, just like the body of Jesus. Okay, we'll be resurrected from that tomb again. But here we have the, we have the moment when Joseph and Nicodemus buried the body of Jesus. So now he's died on the cross, public event. The world witnessed that. But now believers come and bury him. And from that moment on, no person of the world, no one believer ever saw Jesus again. I want you to think about that for a minute. After all, in his public ministry, Jesus went out to the unbelievers, went out to the world. In John chapter 3, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will never perish. So his ministry, before he went to the cross, was to the world. After he dies and he's buried, he never approaches the world again. They never see him again. That's why, remember, he kept saying that you should walk while you have the light Remember, so you may become sons of light. He said, I have a very short period of time. The time for you to believe in Christ is getting very, very short. Because after he dies and goes into the grave, no unbeliever is going to see him. Now, you may be thinking that through in your head right now, some of the, some of the things you know about after he died and was, was raised again. Okay? And I'm not going to go through that in an encyclopedic way this morning about who saw him. But mark it down, and we'll see a little bit of that. None of the people that he came to were unbelievers. You know, for example, we sang this morning about Mary Magdalene, Magdalene, right? Well, she was a believer, and it's interesting. She was a woman, and she was the first to see Jesus alive from the dead. But So she sets the precedent, meaning believer in Christ. Jesus comes to believers. You know, he's going to walk through the walls where where the 11 disciples were, and he's going to come to them, believers. And that's the only people he came to. They never saw him again in the world. All right, back to John chapter 14, verse 19. John fourteen nineteen. Now you may be saying to yourself at this point, why didn't Jesus come and present himself to the world? You know? I mean, his brothers... If you remember back in chapter 7, we're saying, you know, you get to get out there and you got to show yourself to everybody so they know who you are. And of course, he did that to an extent before he died. But after he was risen from the dead, why didn't he go? After all, you know, the, the world will say, well, if he had come and told everybody, then why it wouldn't be any problem? They all would have known that he was raised from the dead. And they use that against Christianity. OK, but here's the thing that you need to understand. God the Father preordained and chose that you and I and that only believers in Jesus Christ would be the vessel, the vehicle by which that good news would be preached. Now, why is that good? Well, it's good because because God's preserving his word through the church, right? So it's going to be, in theory, it's going to be exactly the message that the Lord wants to get out. That's why it's such a tragedy when people don't know the gospel, by the way. 
So that's why I, over and over and over and over again, when you're here, you'll hear it. That's why you have, the, you have the gospel tracts that you can bring and use when you're preaching to the unbeliever. It's the key, right? And we know that because if you were to go to the secular world, the world world, and you would and look, because there, there were things in the secular world, I won't call it the press because they didn't call it that, but writings, okay, weren't that, that were not written by Christians, okay? But when you read them, you notice right away that there's information missing, there's information wrong, and if he had presented himself to unbelievers, that would have been the dominant theme. Does that make sense? Just like today, you know, how much misinformation do we have in the world? Tons. Well, that would have been, if Jesus had chosen, I mean, if the Father had chosen the world, then the message would have been diluted, twisted. But no, he chose the church. He chose the believers only to carry this message to the world. And even though we know that things are tough now and we know that the gospel is misrepresented and we know that the world is getting worse and difficult times have come, yet, even now, he has preserved his word. And there are those, a minority to be sure, who have preserved the simplicity of the gospel and speak it and preach it. Okay. Back in John chapter 14, verse 19 then. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, ever, but you will see me. Now remember, from the time Jesus dies and is in the grave, the world will no longer see him again. Okay? He's in the grave, and by the way, when he's in the grave, of course, his disciples didn't see him either. But then, then something will happen. Notice. But you will see me. You will see me because I live you will live also. What is he saying? He's saying, I'm going to live again. And when I do, I will come to you and you will see me. And oh, by the way, you're going to live also. And what he meant by that, and we'll see this next week, is you're going to live the same life that I will live once I come out of the grave. That's talking about, again, resurrection life. Which, by the way, we can have a, a part in in this world, not our bodies. But when Jesus says you will have eternal life, he says now. Now you can have eternal life defined by what he said, what he's going to say in chapter 17. Namely that father, he's praying to the father and he says, this is eternal life that they may know you, know you and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What is that saying? It's saying you will know the truth. And when you know the truth, you'll actually be experiencing eternal life now. And isn't that true when you think about it? I mean, you know, when you think about eternal life, certainly our bodies aren't there yet. But as we learn more about the word of God, our hearts are there. Right? That's why Paul can say, set your mind on the things above. Because that's where Christ is. See, that's eternal life in that respect. Knowing that what's happening after we die. And being convinced about that. And knowing that no matter what happens in this life, our lives are up there in heaven with him. That's an experience, now it's in our hearts to be sure, of eternal life. You will live also. He's not just talking about physical life and these bodies of corruption now. He's talking about what's going to happen and it's going to be first in our hearts and then someday we're going to have a body just like his as well. So a little while then points first to the burial of Jesus as we've seen. And then soon after that, he's going to be alive. 
He's going to be alive. So in other words, because I live refers to his resurrection from the dead. Now, of course, you know, if you were to just read because I live, you might come up with your own theory about what he meant by that. And there's a lot of them. And I'm not going to confuse you with all the different things, okay? But you have, it's only by, of course, comparing Scripture with Scripture that you can zoom in on the, what he's really saying here. Does that make sense? That's why we study the Bible. That's why we don't just peruse it, right? We study it. We compare Scripture with Scripture. Okay. Because I live refers to his resurrection from the dead. After a little while, the world will no longer see me. I'll be in the grave, and then I'll be coming only to believers. You will see me. Because I live, you will live also. Because I live refers to his resurrection from the dead. And after he rises from the dead, the world will never see him again. But the believers will. And because he lives, they will live also. All right. Please turn to John chapter 16, verse 16. After a little while, he said in fourteen nineteen. after a little while, that expression, a little while, after a little while, the world will no longer see me. He's talking about his burial and then his resurrection. You will see me. Because I live, you will live also. Look at John chapter 16 now. Look at verse 16. A little while. Right? There it is again. Remember I talked about the first thing that, that John writes in a, uh, in a uh, manner where he comes to a subject, then he comes back to it and he adds to it. Right? Here's another example of that. And he gives clues, of course. You know, after a little while, here echoes back, echoes what was said in chapter 14, 19, our verse today. Notice, though, what he says this time. Okay. A little while, and you will no longer see me. After again, and again a little while after that, and you will see me. Now, it's very similar to what he said in verse 19 of chapter 14. Let me, let me read that while you're here. You can look and compare what you see here in verse 16 of chapter 16 or what he said in chapter 14, 19. This is what he said in 14, 19. After a little while, the world will no longer see me. Verse 16 of chapter 16, what does he say? A little while and you will no longer see me. Okay. Now, that might be a source of, okay, so how can, he, how can he then equate us, as it were, with the world? We'll see why. So here he says the world. He doesn't say the world. He says you. He says his disciples will no longer see him. Now, so in other words, okay, you have, you have he dies. There's a little while, less than 24 hours. And then there's another little while when they'll see him again. Can you see that, how that all folds out together? Okay. So this little while is also, well, well the little while that he's talking, I'm going to stop now and just <laughs> slow down a little. When he says a little while and you'll no longer see me, that's the same event that he talked about in verse 16. In other words, the burial. And it's true, right? When he was in the grave, the disciples didn't see him either. The world didn't and the disciples didn't. But then he says, again in a little while, again in a little while, they will no longer see him either for a little while. 
That's the second one. Little dies, little while, goes into the grave, and then another short period of time, they're going to see him again. Of course, that short period of time is from the time he went, goes into the grave and the time he's risen from the dead. Okay, let's continue to read this. Some of his disciples then said to one another, What is this thing he's telling us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I go to the Father. So here's the evidence, here's the proof that they didn't understand what he was talking about. Right? They had no idea what he meant. Verse 18. Again, so they were saying, what is this that he says a little while? In other words, we don't know what he means by a little while. We do not know what he is talking about. Now, Jesus knew that they wished to question him about this. And he said to them, are you deliberating together about this, that I said a little while and you will not see me, and again in a little while and you will see me? That's kind of interesting. We have it three times here. We have the original time he says it. We have their deliberation. And then we have Jesus knowing what their deliberation was about. Okay. Oh, no, but now he's, they asked him a question. We, they asked him a question, right? Well, they didn't ask. They wished to ask him a question, right? What is it that he says a little while? Well, you know, people have already asked him questions before that he didn't answer. Remember we saw that? He didn't answer the question. Here's another example of that. He doesn't answer it direct. In other words, the direct way to answer that question was, this is what I mean by a little while. A little while is... 48 hours. A little while is the day after tomorrow, but that's not what he says. So again, verse 19. Jesus knew that they wished to question him, and he said to them, are you deliberating together about this? That I said a little while, and you will not see me? And again in a little while, you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve. Your grief will be turned into joy. That's how he answered the question a little while. He says, here's what I mean. He says, look, there's going to be a little while, okay, where you're not going to see me. You're going to be grieved by that. They're going to say he's died. We lost him, okay. And what? The world will rejoice. Of course it will. Of course it will. Who's the world? The enemies of Christ. If When they think he's dead... They're rejoicing. So, but then, he's, and he says, you will grieve. You'll be grieving. Okay, but then he says, your grief will be turned into joy. In other words, he did answer the question, just not in the way that they expected. A little while, and you won't see me. I'll be in the grave. And in a little while, you will see me. Your grief then will be, will be turned to joy. After Jesus died, his disciples wept and lamented. Mary, Mary Magdalene was still weeping by the grave, not realizing that that tomb was empty. They lamented. They were sad. They were filled with grief. But the world, now remember the, who represents the world, the enemies of Jesus, the Sanhedrin, they were they who wagged their tongues at him, the Romans who, was, who crucified him. When Jesus died, that world rejoiced. They did. Now, that shouldn't be a surprise. Who's the, who's the ruler of this world? Satan. Satan, the devil. Well, he's behind the whole thing, right? Who was it that influenced Judas to betray Jesus? 
the devil. We should, in fact, the, the, John is explicit about that. He's, Jesus is explicit about that. One of you is a devil. And then John said, at that moment, when they're in the upper room, and, and Jesus said, what you do, do quickly, back in chapter 13. And then John notes, and at that moment, the devil entered into him. Right? So he's behind the whole thing. Now, not only that, but the Romans who crucified him. Okay? He was behind that as well. Okay? He influenced the Jewish leadership to betray and condemn him. Remember, remember we saw this in chapter 8, where Jesus turned to this Jewish leadership and said, You are of your father, the devil. So we see him on the scene. And he's working with the betrayers and the ones that are going to try to, that will condemn him. So, and so, while the Bible doesn't say so, you can at least infer that he was happy to. Why? Because he had a purpose. And it looked to him like his purpose was fulfilled. Of course, little did he know that that was his death now, which, which Paul is going to bring out. He's going to talk about that. That Jesus defeated all the principalities, all the fallen angels, and Satan himself at the cross. So, so again, they were, they were weeping, they were lamenting, the disciples, the world was rejoicing. But again, after a little while, the disciples' grief would be turned into joy. When does that happen? We, once again, just to reinforce this, when Jesus is raised from the dead, instantly, the disciples' grief turned into joy. Instantly. Mary, again, she's, the, she's typical. She's on the scene first. She's weeping, lamenting. As a matter of fact, when, he, when she first saw him, she didn't recognize him, thought he was the gardener. But then he spoke to her. And at that moment, boom, she knew he was risen from the dead. And her grief turned into joy. And that happened over and over and over again. When Jesus was raised from the dead, the grief of the disciples turned into joy. Verse 21. Jesus uses a picture, an analogy, something that they were familiar with, a very common kind of thing that goes on, of course, even today. When a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. Now, Jesus kept saying, my hour has come. And what did he mean by that? He's going to die on the cross, pain. When the woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But, When she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy. The joy set before her that a child has been born into this world. So there is pain and there is a life. Pain followed by new life. Well, guess what? Same thing, right, about Jesus Christ. Pain at the cross, new life at the resurrection. So he's using a picture to say the same thing. And then he says, verse 22, Therefore you'll have, you too will have grief now, but I will see you again. Now he repeats that. I will come to you. You will see me. And your heart will rejoice. And notice the next part. No one will ever take your joy away from you. No one will ever take your joy away from you. That was true of, of the disciples. And it can be true about us. <laughs> we're, we're in this place now. We don't see him, but we believe him believe in him. We're also under more severe attack, believe it or not, from the principalities and powers than even Peter was, for example. Okay, so we have obstacles to be, to be joyous, right? 
But we certainly have the capacity to. That's why Paul over and over again would say, rejoice always. I'm telling you, rejoice, right? Why? Because the same reason. Jesus is risen from the dead. And we can rejoice looking back at that. And we can also rejoice looking forward to the resurrection that we will be in part of. And and we can rejoice that we have eternal life now. And our names are written in heaven. But here the disciples did rejoice. Boy, did they ever. And, and it turned out that no one was ever able to take that joy away from them. Oh, they tried. Right? The world tried to take the joy away from the disciples. From Peter, from, from James, from, from all of them they tried. They beat them. They stoned them. And they killed them. But none of it worked. None of it worked. This is, by the way, another great proof that Jesus did rise from the dead. Because no matter what the world tried to do to these messengers of the resurrection, they couldn't stop them from preaching the gospel. Now, if that were a hoax, I'm telling you, there would have been a few people anyway, knowing human nature as I do. If Jesus hadn't risen from the dead, then there would be some who would betray him once again. Okay? And so that never happened. All of them went to their graves. Some of them, after having been beaten and, and, and put in prison and even stoned to death. But none of it worked. They were never, the world was never able to take their joy from them. To give you an example of that, please turn to Acts chapter 5, verse 40. Acts chapter 5, verse 40. So the apostles were preaching in the city of Jerusalem. Okay, and then the, 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 the leaders said, we've got to stop this. By the way, if it was a hoax, would they have been concerned about stopping it? No, because they could have proven it was a hoax. They had all the information they needed, by the way. You know, they had access to the tomb, for example. But they, so they wanted to shut him down. They took his advice. Okay, the advice was given to the leadership. You know, put him in jail. After calling the apostles in, they said, come on in, we're going to deal with you. They flogged them. They beat them. They're trying to take their joy away. They ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus. But where does the joy come from? The person of Jesus Christ. They're like, there's no way. We're not going to give up this joy. We're going to keep preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then they released him. So they went on their way from the presence of the council. And what's the next word? Rejoicing. Notice, they had been flogged. They had been ordered not to speak. Then they were released, and they went on their way. Bye-bye, council. And they were so happy. That's another kind of, that's a really unusual response to being beaten and flogged, isn't it? Woohoo! I'm happy. I'm joyful. But, of course, it wasn't like that. That joy was in their hearts, right? Not necessarily in their overt expression. In any event, they were rejoicing. Why? that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Well, Peter was one of those apostles that day, and later on, he wrote about Christian suffering. You can think of it as him applying what, what perhaps what he learned that day in Acts 5 to then talking about us and saying, listen, I want you to see this the same way. You will go through things. You will be sorrowful in that sense. You know, Paul would list them out, right? 
persecutions and sword and hunger. You're going to go through some of that stuff. You're going to suffer. But notice what Peter says about Christian suffering. I want you to turn now to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 13. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 13. So now Peter's going to talk to, write to Christians. And he's going to tell them, you're going to go through things. Don't act like there's something strange happening because this has all been ordained. You know, Paul, Paul says in the book of Philippians, you have the privilege not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Suffering for Christ is a privilege. Never forget that. And it, and, and it allows us to understand exactly how powerful that joy is. Why? Because it's, e- it's sort of easier to be joyful when everything is going your way. But when you're being beaten, persecuted, put into jail, right, snubbed, all those other things, humanly speaking, it, you can't rejoice in that if all you have is what you can see and hear. But when you have the truth about who Jesus is, you can. And then it's really alive. You're like, wow, this joy is real. First Peter 4, verse 13. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. Keep your mind on the things above, because of the things you know, no matter what you go through, you can rejoice in your hearts that some things will never be taken away. They'll never be taken away. Same thing with Peter, with Paul, by the way. His letters bursting with joy. I had a list this morning. All the places where he talks about rejoice, rejoice. You know, be filled with joy. The fruit of the Spirit is love, Joy, right? It's all over the New Testament epistles. Paul letters, Paul's letters were bursting with joy, even in the midst of terrible suffering that he underwent. Okay, let's go back to our passage one more time this morning. John 14, verse 18 and 19. I should say 18 and 19. John 14, 18 and 19. I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you. After a little while, after he dies and and is buried, the world will no longer see me. But you will see me at his resurrection. And after that, because I live, you will live also. So again, a little while refers to the burial of Jesus. Now what happens after a little while? Well, of course, Jesus is raised from the dead. His resurrection. Now, given that, what does Jesus mean by I will come to you and, I will, and you will see me? So after a little while, right, he lives. That's the resurrection. And then he says, I'll come to you. You will see me. What's he talking about then? I'll tell you what he's talking about then. He's talking about the fact that after he rises from the dead, he's going to appear to a lot of disciples. Many, many, many appearances. Okay, in fact... Um, on Resurrection Sunday, I've taught about that in the past. And there's, you could say there's up to 17, and not just one person, groups of people. That's what he's talking about. You will see me because I'm going to appear to you after I'm raised from the dead. He made several appearances, by the way, to the 11, right? That was the special group, the same people that were in the upper room with him. He certainly appeared to them. Because those are the ones he directly said, I will come to you. And he did. Look at John chapter 20, verse 26. John 20, 26. 
After eight days, that's the week after he rises from the dead. After eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas was with them. Of course, Thomas didn't believe it because he wasn't there. And they said, he's risen. He said, I won't believe it unless I put his, my fingers in the, in the holes that are in his hands and so forth. Jesus came. I will come to you. The doors having been shut and he stood in their midst and he said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands and reach here your hand and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. At that moment, he knew that he was God. He knew that he, that that the father was in him and he was in the father. And then Jesus adds on to that. And this is for us primarily. He said, because you've seen me, have you believed? Blessed are those who did not see and yet believed. And finally, Paul provides a catalog of sorts of these post-resurrection appearances of Christ. And we'll just end there. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. It's, it's all happening in the Gospels. There are some things that the Gospel writers didn't talk about in terms of the appearances of Jesus after the resurrection. So it, it's left to Paul, okay, he, who was writing 10, 15, 20, 30 years after the resurrection. He's able to kind of look at it all and give a catalog. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance... What I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared. I will come to you. Notice that he is, Paul is using that to support the amazing truth that Jesus was raised on the third day. What we have in verse 3 and 4 is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Once again, if you want to go to a scripture where it's right there, you go to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. So he says he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, those are the people that were in the upper room with him. After that, he appeared to more than, notice this, 500 brethren, brethren of believers at one time, so again, we have Peter was a believer, the 12 were believers, the 500 were believers, most of whom remain until now. That's interesting. That most of those 500 were still available to be interrogated. They were still preaching the gospel. But some have fallen asleep, some have died. And then he appeared to James, and then all the apostles again. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. And of course, that's Peter. All right. I'm sorry, what did I say? Paul. Yeah, you're right. I did. It's Paul. Thank you. Last of all, it's the one untimely born. He appeared to me also. Your resurrected Christ appeared to Paul. All right. Let's go back to our passage and we'll wrap this up this morning. Let's go to John 14, verse 19 one more time. After a little while, the world will no longer see me. But you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. 
and verse 20, in that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you will know that you're in me, and you will know that I'm in you. When we return next Sunday, we're going to take up the last part of verse 19, what he meant by, because I live, you will live also. And then we'll see verse 20, where Jesus gives a preview of the wondrous things that are going to be coming on in the church age. All right, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you again this morning for allowing us to be here and to hear your word and to see the amazing things that are laid out in your word, to understand the meaning and purpose of the death and resurrection of your son, to understand that Jesus Christ was preparing his apostles for the age in which we now live, the church age. And Father, we ask you today that we would be able to, because of what we've seen this morning, be give us a succinct message of truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ, so that they may, people may believe and be sealed by the Spirit. And we ask this morning also, Father, once again, that you take care of your flock, your children, the believers in Christ, the members of Christ's body. Please take care of every one of us, Father. We, we don't know what the future will hold, but we know as long as we hold on to the truths about you and your Son, we will get through it just fine. We ask this all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, you're dismissed.